Welcome back to Data Protection Gumbo for episode number 143. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and today I speak with John Gilmore, head of research at Delete Me by Abine. And John has a 20-year background in business intelligence research, having started at Data Monitor with Delete Me founder Rob Chevelle where they began as analysts covering consumer and technology sectors, respectively. And in this episode, we discuss why authentication is a problem right now, how big tech has changed consumer behavior in the face of major privacy problems, and how new state-level regulations like CCPA and VDPA will influence how businesses will handle their data moving forward. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, John. How are you today? Doing well. How are you? I am I'm doing well. Really excited to, to have you on the gumbo. And tell us a little, a little more about yourself and also about Delete Me as well, if you don't mind. Sure, no problem. Delete Me was a company started by my buddy Rob Chevelle and a couple of his friends. Uh, colleagues about 10 years ago, 2011. The the company was started as kind of a broad privacy-oriented company for consumers. The initial products were uh, a payments masking service called Blur, which is still available um, and pretty widely used. And the other service was Delete Me, which is a online personal information removal service. That has sort of become the key brand of the company. I think very few people know of the company is Abine, which was the original company. Uh, they know it as Delete Me, which is kind of the number one brand in online data removal. Um, and I joined the company about five years ago uh, when the company was about halfway through its sort of maturity. And um, Rob and I knew each other from a decade earlier. Uh, we both worked at a market research firm called Data Monitor. We were analysts. We were analysts there. And he had gone off to SoftBank, and I had gone off to Wall Street. And he brought me in about five years ago to, to when the company was really growing very fast, saying we, we need a little bit more um, support on the sort of professionalization of our communications, um, on the research side to understand how we can um, understand the marketplace better. And mainly just because I'm kind of, as a research guy, which is what I've been for 20 years, I'm kind of pretty good at getting up to speed on a lot of things with a lot of details. And the privacy subject is very broad and very deep. And so I've spent the last five years kind of focusing exclusively on online data privacy and everything related to it. And so that's kind of the role I play within the company as I'm kind of the knowledge, the the research and the knowledge guy uh, to sort of inform us internally about things that we can do to improve the product, things we can do to um, address the problems that are emerging. Okay, great, great. So before I guess I really jump too deep into the questions, uh, you said that you are a research guy, and I love to get behind the scenes of what a research guy does. And and, and what what's your process? Like as soon as you realize that you are going to have to go deep into something, and let's say they come with they come to you with a situation and say hey we need to know about xyz like what's your framework what's your process what's going on in john's head 
Well, uh, the normal the normal process it's not very different from journalism on some level. Only the difference is uh, between a journalist and a research analyst is a research analyst actually reads the entire third party reports, all of the details, not just the executive summary. And you also, as a research analyst, often have to be very aware of the methodology and sources of data and what the motivations behind them are, which is understanding, I'll get, I'll just as an example, for instance, in the cybersecurity industry, the vast majority of data is gathered and published by cybersecurity firms themselves, that they use clients as uh, an analytical sample to to make a, a assumptions about what is the total universe of cyber attacks and so they they're using their clients as a sample and the data they get from them to describe the world as it is and there is an incentive from their point of view and again i'm just talking about like cybersecurity there is an incentive from their point of view to emphasize the problems that they are the solution to so if you're a network security provider when you do your research report about cybersecurity threats, what are you going to emphasize? You're going to emphasize the things for which you are a solution. And that is true. I mean, and so I think probably one of the most important parts of being a research analyst is understanding where the data comes from, who's collecting it, and why are they publishing it in such a way. And so you need to take a very, very skeptical eye towards all sorts of research sources and understand the underlying basis of it and you also you need to understand its limitations like the thing i always get angry about with journalists is they don't understand the data that's being gathered they will look at survey data and say 30 percent of americans believe this when it's a sample of like a hundred people you know i mean they can't distinguish between low quality surveys and and like the american general survey or the global community you know what i mean there there is a very low ability to distinguish data quality in your average sort of journalist at the same time someone who's a research analyst you 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 are very reliant on journalists to get sort of um the the stories about what's happening in the real world and so they that you do read a lot of media you do stay on top of sort of emerging stories and i have a great one uh that i will mm-hmm. allude to later okay but um and then thirdly i would say the, the probably the most important thing this goes back to rob rob and i's origins at data monitor is actually talking to senior people at companies is that the, one of the most important research sources are executives. So you call up people at companies and you talk to them. Most of these things are done off the record. But if you want to understand like how, what's motivating, for instance, like Google's changes to privacy, you can't call Google because they're not going to disclose their internal deliberations about these things. But you can call their partners, you can call their clients and say, what's behind this? What are the, the, you know, and you can get a very simple version of, to understand what's going on underneath the hood. And so I would say those three things, which is secondary sources and being able to scrutinize them, primary sources, being able to speak to high-level people, uh, those are really the core ingredients of what's involved in sort of business research. Okay. Great, great. And, you know, one thing that, that I, I actually see on a daily basis is, uh, there's there's always some type of breach or there's some type of attack, and I think I just read something that happened with Oct- Okta. 
that uh, everyone, you know, trusts and, and uses it. But no one is is off limits, even if you are a security company or you and I, you know, the the little old lonely consumer, you know, we're the ones who who actually take the brunt of all of this stuff. And I know authentication and the way you log in and, and you do your passwords is very important. But from your perspective, John, what, why is authentication a problem right now? I think the simplest and shortest way of explaining it is that PII, personal information, which name, phone number, date of birth, your address, your relations, where you work, where you went to school, that sort of information has been gradually sort of building up in the public sphere for decades. That the average, the collection of personal information has been going on for decades, even before the internet. You have your axioms, uh, who've been collecting consumer information for decades. Uh, the Experians, who collect credit information, all your financial information. Um, that that's all. That's all sort of very normal. What, what's happened over the last 20 years is all of what used to be like big data that was exclusive to these uh, companies has just become part of the public domain. Is that if you want to know everything you need to know about any individual in America, you can, you can get it. You can get it very quickly. And it's essentially made knowledge-based authentication obsolete. Um, the GAO released a report in 2019 announcing this to all the federal agencies. Um, they essentially said everyone in the federal government is using knowledge-based authentication and it's obsolete. You need to stop. Um, and they were very prescient about this because the following year in 2020 uh, was the largest boom in identity fraud and in, in uh, if not American history and world history, when billions, yes, it was because the government was handing out billions and billions in benefits, uh, unemployment benefits, payment protection plan benefits, Medicare benefits, that there was this deluge of benefits being handed out. And everyone in the world of fraud saw it as a gold mine. And an enormous percentage of that was lost to fraud. And the government warned, the GAO warned everyone that your authentication processes are completely garbage. And it was proven the, the following year. And that is really what set the stage for IRS saying, well, I guess we're going to have to adopt something like IDME. Essentially, that everyone realized that they knew, need to build better systems for authentication but they don't have time to build it internally, so which is what prompted them to reach to the first third party they could find. Mm, okay, and, and you just you just mentioned ID me, so that that's a a very catchy name, um, and we're always being ID'd, uh, especially when we are on social media, and there is a, a digital footprint that that we leave behind. I always tell my kids. Uh, especially because I have girls and I just made sure that they were aware of any and everything that you post on TikTok or anywhere. It is a footprint that you are leaving behind and you better be privy to how you want to be seen. And it is not going to be erased, even though there's there's certain rules out there that you can 
get certain pieces of data removed, but I'm not quite sure if it is a complete removal unless you sign up for one of these expensive services and they go through and kind of wipe your entire um, identity off. But question is, you know, why, why ID me in particular and how did that come into being and the adoption of uh, ID me and just get, give us some information and some details about about that. The company, my understanding is the company came into being about uh, a little bit more than a de- decade ago as a service called TroopSwap. They were offering themselves as sort of a facilitator to improve veteran services. Um, now, if you're a veteran, you are entitled to a whole range of benefits. Uh, and you get discounts from certain people, you get free services from other people. But navigating, when you have hundreds and hundreds of vendors who offer benefits to troops, it's a complex mess because everyone has a slightly different way of approaching it. And so the, I think the value proposition they had was, we can smooth this process where they would go to veterans and say, give us your military ID, give us your basic PII, and we will manage the relationship. We'll create a single sign-on so that anyone who wants to offer you benefits, we can one-click. We can provide a one-click verification that you are a veteran, you, you are entitled to these benefits, and we can make that easy. And so that's a really great service for these kind of very specialty instances of which I think you know veterans' benefits is, is a good fit. For that sort of thing. That led over the course of five to seven years that they eventually got a contract with the Veterans Administration to do a verification for the, the VA. And so that was really the big validating moment for their company. But in between then and now, um, they've sort of rapidly tried to scale themselves up. Now, the VA is a pretty big institution. You know, I, I don't know off the top of my head what the numbers are, but it's in the millions. There, there are millions of, of veterans in the United States with different levels of, of service that they need. Um, so they had to kind of transform them, themselves from a company that built itself around one federal agency into someone who could service all of them or any of them. And there was fairly little uptake. I don't think they really matured until 2020, which was the thing I alluded to before, which was in, when there was this massive, massive tidal wave of benefits fraud affecting state unemployment agencies, affecting federal agencies, that everyone in the government realized, as I said, which the GIO had announced, everyone realized that there was a major problem and there was no easy solution. And so IDME was well positioned at that point, to present themselves as we're the quick fix. We can fix this for you. And um, I think that it's probably, I, w- I would not want to accuse them of misrepresenting themselves, but I don't think they were fully prepared to scale up the way they really had to. They initially started offering their services to state unemployment agencies, and they're now used by 27 states for uh, identity verification. But it, this, the speed at which they've had to do that has come with enormous problems. And if you just Google unemployment insurance verification problems, that they, there are hours of waits, that, it, that what they're really doing is actually making it harder for people to access benefits to which they're entitled. Um, 
I think that if I had to sum it up very quickly, I would say they're not ready for the big time. And for IRS to have adopted them at this stage and said they are the default verification service for online access for the entire IRS was an even bigger leap forward for them, where they would now have to service millions and millions and millions of Americans by default. Um, and I think it, the what needs to be understood is that the, they were, they are still serving in that role. They are still being used by a number of federal agencies, Social Security Administration, General Services Administration. They're just not using the facial recognition aspect because that's what there was pushback about. Um, so, so they are still in place, and they are still sort of situated as this intermediary between U.S. consumers and federal services. And I don't think they should be. I think they should be dropped completely, but that's probably unlikely. Awesome. And I'm not quite sure how many options are, are out there because what we're what we're really talking about here is authentication and and just being able to have that privacy when you're online and the best way to gain that privacy when you're interacting across you know the the cloud or just overall the internet when you're logging in whether it's on your phone or it's in your your laptop or even your 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 TV right everything is just so so interconnected and the internet of things is a very wide and diverse thing and you know we're entering information in and we don't even think about it anymore so we we are you know digital privy but we're not sensitive to what we're actually the information that we're giving we're not really sensitive to that because we're more desensitized to to that but what are some of the possible options for let's say better identity authentication from your perspective well, I mean, if you think about it this way, the development of how to confirm identity, that the password is kind of this thing that we settled on, is that it's a private piece of information. The social security number, in some ways, if you think about it, predated the password in that the assumption is only you know your social security number. So if you use that when logging into, say, government services or anyone else, that it would uniquely identify you. It, it very quickly became clear that sharing your social security number with lots and lots of third parties is a bad idea because data breaches ultimately mean now anyone can now imitate that. The same is ultimately true of passwords, where you create your own identifier that you only personally know. Well, you share it with thousands of third parties, and now everybody knows it. And data breaches over the course of decades have essentially made the password obsolete. What's the next step after that was two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication is the current sort of status quo, and it is something of a stopgap to improve the password. The password is dead, but no one wants to let it die completely because there is no um, easy solution after two-factor authentication. That the, the, the technology, and I will explain what that is in a moment. But everyone knows that moving to the next step, which is uh, something called web authen, web authenticity, web authentication. It's a new web standard developed by the World Wide Web Consortium and the FIDO Alliance. That is sort of a new standard, and it's a, crypto a cryptographic key, which between a website client and yourself, 
and it creates basically a randomized number so that when you authenticate yourself that you have the, it basically asks a cryptographic question and you provide the cryptographic solution to the question. That is the technological solution to a lot of our authentication problems. However, implementation will probably take years. That even though everyone knows this is the better way, the right way to do it, implementation is going to take a long time. So in the meantime, we're stuck with two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication is essentially using a device is as the password, if you think about it that way, which is you enter your password, it then sends a code to your device, and your device is the unique identifier, not the password. The password can be a lie. Anyone can know it, but it's the device that verifies it. So that's kind of the current status quo. However, there, there are problems with two-factor authentication. It can be bypassed. It can be bypassed. The most common scam is I send you a fake email saying, I'm from Google, or I'm from Amazon, I'm from Facebook, or whomever. Uh, you're, there's, there, you've had a problem with your account. We need you to log on. You click the link in the email. You go to the login page. You give your username and password. That was a fake login. The person who sent you the email is the one. And so you then get sent a real two-factor authentication, and you just let them in. It's a very simple, all they have to do, all they have to, do to, to scam you is make you click the link in the email rather than going directly to the real website and try it there. And also, John, I have heard of um, where if you have two-factor authentication and the code comes to your cell phone, but what if they have cloned your SIM? SIM card cloning, all of that exists. There is SIM card cloning. There is sort of like you can do uh, like a cell SMS bypass where if you can essentially clone the number itself so that SMS messages you receive, a third party also receives. There's a number of sort of technical ways to make the device insecure. You can have an app. You could have downloaded an app, which you've given access to your SMS. There's a whole variety of ways that it can be technically bypassed. But even that, I think the point I'm trying to emphasize, even that is not necessary. You can bypass 2FA with simple social engineering techniques. You don't, it's not a particularly good solution. It's good. It's better. The quote, my famous when Hank Paulson from uh, the 2008 financial crisis was asked, are things, you know, better? And he said, yes, things are better now. They're not good. That So 2FA, you know, two-factor authentication is better than passwords alone. It's not good. It's not, it's not great, but it's better. Um, but there, there, there are other issues as well, which is that the big problem from the point of view, I think, from the commercial side from financial services firms or from any companies is you want to keep the process as simple as possible. And if you have to go through a two-step, every time you log into an account, if you have to first log in and then go to your device, if you're constantly jumping between things, that's not an ideal solution for the long term. No one wants to have, I mean, you, you might not have uh, cell service. You, you, there are m many reasons why the battery might be dead on your phone. You know, it's, it is not a good solution um, for simple. 
for simplicity's sake. And ultimately what industry wants is a one-click passwordless solution. And that's where we would like to be. But and there are the technology for it has been developed. It's just the implementation is currently too complex for the private sector and it's way too complex for the government. Yeah, and you know, we, we have time for maybe one or two more questions, but what uh, what I really want to understand is just from a maybe like a state level from like a regular regulatory requirement perspective, things like CCPA uh, GDPR is in Europe, um, but of course you have to know exactly what that is because most companies in, in, in the United States also operate in, in the EU. You know, how, how do you think that some of these state level regulations will influence uh, some, of, some of the business decisions or decisions that businesses need to make on how to handle data and also the decisions that they make? Do you think that, that any of this stuff may lead to like federal action? No. The short answer is no. It's a very complex subject, which I could we could talk for hours about. The short answer is that states are developing consumer privacy legislation. That some of it is good. Some of it's very good. Uh, like Illinois' Biometric Information Privacy Act has been extremely effective. It's caused a lot of uh, class action lawsuits. And that is genuinely changing the way big companies handle biometric information. The comprehensive privacy laws being passed in, say, Virginia or uh, Colorado and the CCPA, they are limited by the state's ability to enforce them or even the state's motivation to enforce them. They can pass all kinds of very detailed regulations and laws. If they only have the ability to enforce, if they're, if they're only suing a handful of companies a year, the risk level from the point of view of the compliance risk from the point of view of business is like negligible that you, you effectively don't have to worry about it because you are never at risk of being having compliance enforced against you. There's also the added issue, which is that many of these laws that are passing are being watered down by lobbyists in the process. So the whole concept behind the state's creating norms at the moment. Uh, I think it was, was it Axios did a piece on this last week, which was very good. It was very brief, but it, it made the point very clearly, which is that, that many of these state laws that are getting passed are laws in name only. They're essentially being written by the industry to, to ensure that if and when any federal legislation ever happens, that it, it, is, it adheres to the lowest common denominator so that it will essentially be rules the tech industry already wants to abide by that they're comfortable with. What they're scared about are these kind of rogue um, laws that are very detailed and that have private right of action. And those would be things like Illinois' BIPA, Texas has passed a law that is similar. I don't know. It has limited private right of action, to my understanding. Um, so there are a few laws at the state level that are influencing small aspects of the way things will develop. But on the big picture, the answer is no. The answer is at the big picture. At the big picture, I think there would be a prospect for federal data privacy legislation in maybe 2023 or 2024. Nothing's going to happen this year because of the midterms. Um, 
and that, that its primary focus will not really be consumer data privacy. Its primary focus will be harmonizing with the GDPR so that companies can better able to share data uh, with their European so that companies that operate in Europe and the U.S. can can use the same data in both places. It will be much more oriented around making things, reducing litigation risk for business than it will be for really providing better consumer data privacy. Got it, got it. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff, and it's it's so many rules and regulations and compliance things that you, you have to be privy of, and I guess that's why they pay the lawyers big bucks and chief data officers and, you know, all of these different um, names that, you know, you have to have a team of really smart folks because no one person is going to know uh, all of this stuff. Um, So it's great to have a conversation with someone such as yourself uh, to better understand, you know, more more ways on, you know, how to have your privacy online uh, a little better. Um, one, one last question before I let you go, and then I'll let you maybe share your, you know, social media details if you'd like to, how people can, can follow or, or reach out, but I have uh, none. Th- that's right. I you have know. none. We're a privacy. I, I forgot about that. We're a privacy company. We, we, we clean up our footprints. I think, I think I might still have information about me from high school, but, uh, it's as being being part of a privacy company means we have very little to no yeah. social media presence. That was a trick question, by the way. I just wanted to <laughs> test to see what your answer would be, John. Right. Um, but as far as a future technology, so what, what do you see on the horizon? Is that artificial intelligence and machine learning being used more, more facial recognition, whatever? You know, what what do you see as the the next level of privacy? Well, I think biometrics. The Biometrics are going to be a component of identity authentication, and they're also a source of potential risk. So there is a growing use of biometrics uh, all across various kinds of information technology, but like that's fingerprints, voice prints, facial recognition. Um, There is, with the increasing amount of video content, increasing amount of image content, that if you can elicit someone's identity from a single photograph, you don't need to worry about their name, address, phone number, that you can actually just get it all in one place. Um, so the the issue of biometrics is a huge component of any future data privacy issues, um, ensuring that it's used responsibly. And that's kind of why I said the BIPA is a very important law um, and that should be strengthened if possible. The other issue I would say is the sort of web authen, which I alluded to before, which is a a standard that has been agreed upon by a bunch of technology consortiums and the finance and finance industry. And I think that will be the next step after two-factor authentication. Um, I think the big issue there is improving the user experience so that it can really uh, be seamless and fix the current problems that we have with two-factor authentication. Um, But, you know, as long as there is a significant share of the population that doesn't have mobile devices, that is essentially not on the internet, as you might say, there there is always this certain percentage of the population that needs to do things the old-fashioned way. Um, I think that until 
until they're, everyone has gotten on the same level, that we're always going to be operating at the lowest con common denominator, and that is the barrier for things like universal facial recognition or biometrics or sort of cryptographic uh, uh, authentication, that as long as there's a significant share of the population that is technically limited, that it will, it will remain sort of a problem. Awesome, awesome. And what, what's on your nightstand? What, what are you reading? Are you reading something interesting that you could probably share for the audience? <laughs> no, I read a lot of research reports and I read a lot of bad laws. Mm. Uh, uh, aside from that, I read um, a lot of bloggers, a lot of substacks. Mm -hmm. What's uh, a, sub, what's a know, substack? Substack is kind of the new platform for, that a lot of journalists have moved to to publish independently. So if you like a certain writer for a certain publication, that, um, when they when they develop critical mass, they essentially go independent. That's where Matt Iglesias is now. Um, that's where a lot of independent journalists have have moved, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's kind of good. It's they they send they send stuff straight to your inbox, so that rather than going to a magazine, you essentially can curate the the content that you read uh, independently. Okay. Awesome. I'm sure sure someone will gain gain some nuggets of information on that one. Um, so, uh, John, it has definitely been a pleasure having you on, and I have learned some things myself, and I'm sure some of the Gumbo listeners will take away a few uh, tidbits of information as well. Um, so I do appreciate you being on the show. And if there's any one final thought that you would like to leave with the guest, you may do it now. Uh, no final thoughts. I would say if you're interested in online privacy, you can always go to getdeleteme.com. Check out our service. It removes personal information from data brokers and people search sites. And we also have, uh, we've been doing this. We launched a B2B service uh, three years ago, and we're now providing privacy services to a lot of enterprises. Um, and if you're interested in helping protect businesses from social engineering, ransomware, etc., we're there too. So look, look out for it. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Demetrius. You have a good one. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.